0: Hey guys, just a few notes before you listen. This interview was recorded months ago, and Daniel now uses the pronouns they, them. That's why the pronouns are different in the interview versus the mic drop. Also, there's a mention of suicidal thoughts for about 15 seconds toward the middle of the interview. If this topic triggers you, you may want to skip that part. Lastly, Daniel suffers from anxiety, so it made them more comfortable to prepare answers to some of the questions in advance. Happy listening! Our stories are what make us unique, but they're also what connect us as human beings. It's time to stop talking and start listening. This is You Talk, I'll Listen with Shannon Chapman. What I think a lot of us see when we think about someone who's homeless is the person in tattered clothes, sleeping on the sidewalk, and begging for food. However, homelessness looks different for different people. According to the American Psychological Association, the definition of homelessness includes anyone who lacks a safe, stable, and appropriate place to live. That could be someone who's living in a motel, in a shelter, or an overcrowded situation, not just someone who's actually living on the street. I couldn't find any really recent statistics, But it's estimated that between 2 to 3 million people in the US experience homelessness each year. There's a link between homelessness and mental illness. Statistics reveal that the rates of mental illness in the homeless population are twice the rate of those in the general population. My guest this week has experience dealing with both homelessness and mental illness. He suffers from complex PTSD due to trauma he's experienced, and he had a stint in his life where he was homeless. I'm hoping that this conversation will help to broaden our perspective of what homelessness looks like and what complex PTSD looks like, and also what helps you cope with this trauma that you've experienced. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you for having me. So, Daniel, let's start with your childhood. What was your childhood like? How did you grow up?
1: Well, I grew up in Sturbridge, Massachusetts, a middle child of three. Now, it has recently been discovered that both of my siblings are on the autism spectrum. So, unbeknownst to me, I was growing up in something of a spectrum sandwich. Also unknown to me at the time was exactly how strained my parents' marriage was. My mother, she very much wanted to assert her individuality as she pursued professional bodybuilding. Uh, My father, a strict conservative who grew up on a farm, served in two branches of the military, and uh, would later join the Mormon church, very much wanted the classic nuclear family. Uh, They divorced when I was 13. My emotional state during this period of my life was, for the most part, timid and sad. I can remember being as young as eight years old and feeling so unmotivated that all I wanted to do was lay on the living room couch and stare at the floor. Our father is a man who likes to be heard, but not so much to listen. So during extended family gatherings at our home, if any of the kids were drowning out his conversation, he would bark at them to be quiet. My paternal grandfather would take me on camping trips with my cousin, during which I would get sick. I had a stomach affliction growing up and his response to my affliction was to terrorize me and call me soft in the head, as if I were getting sick on purpose. My older sister, as she grew into her teenage years and wanted to fit in with the cooler crowd and also dealing with her own emotional perspectives on our family dynamic, uh, began to hold me in contempt for my nerdiness and, shall we say, insufficient masculinity. She would verbally provoke me and beat on me, the latter of which would worsen after the divorce. Furthermore, throughout my school years growing up in Western Massachusetts, some of the more favored brands of insults were words like queer and gaylord, while at home, anyone who was not a heterosexual, cisgendered, white Christian was an object of ridicule or contempt. So in my early 20s, as I began to come to grips with what we would today call gender fluidity— I was not prepared to offer any member of my family the opportunity to accept that aspect of myself or any other aspect of myself for that matter. So it came to pass when I turned 23 that I would make the classic fool's mistake of my generation by meeting someone online who I thought would be more accepting of me and moved from Massachusetts to Sarasota, Florida to be with that person.
0: How did you end up becoming homeless?
1: So that's a bit of a long story. For the first five and a half years of my life in Sarasota, I lived with the person I met online, as well as her ready-made family in her mother's house. The environment overall was profoundly toxic. The person I met online, who shall remain nameless, was a user of people, a liar, a gaslighter, and a thief. Her mother had a mouth like a cudgel, which she routinely used to beat into us that we were stupid failures who couldn't possibly handle our own kids. I was the only adult in a household with four to hold down a steady job for more than a month. Consequently, I could never hold on to any portion of my paycheck in order to try and save up enough money to move out, at least with my partner and our kids. I slept very little and ate almost as little. There were moments during this period of my life where I contemplated hanging myself. When I finally told them that I wanted to leave and take our daughter with me, I was threatened with ruination, and rather than take up the slack left by my impending absence and turn our filthy house into a home suitable for such a family, everyone just scattered. The mother and her partner went to go live with another family member. Uh, My partner and three of our four kids moved to Port Charlotte to live in a house that was owned by her most recent employer at the time, while the fourth child went to go live with the grandparents. Until I could find a place of my own, or a place I could share with someone else, I squatted on the remaining furniture in the filthy old house. When I finally was able to leave that place and share an apartment with the first of a couple of, shall we say, colorful roommates, I went through a bit of a cathartic period. Having spent the last five and a half years doing nothing but working, both at my liquor store job and at home, I started spending more time out at the bar on karaoke night and pursuing as many sexual encounters as I could. During this time, I cultivated a relationship with yet another person that I would meet online, and she invited me to live with her at her home in Nokomis. We became regular karaoke partners until she began to set her sights on my friend the DJ. Some drama arose at this time with my daughter's mother, which gave my new girlfriend the perfect excuse to say she no longer wanted me in her life so that she could pursue a legitimate relationship with the DJ. It was at this point in my life that I began to feel like I just had nobody to turn to. I missed my family and all of my friends back home in Massachusetts and decided I wanted to begin making preparations to move back. In order to more swiftly get out of the girlfriend's house, I accepted an invitation from an acquaintance I met at a poetry gathering to crash on her couch until I could get my affairs in order to move back home. This lasted about a week before it became apparent that she did not clear this arrangement with her landlord. When the landlord found out that I was crashing on her couch, he ordered me out immediately. And if I was not out immediately, then we would both be out. So, as soon as I got off work that night, I gathered all my things into the back of my car and went looking for a motel room. I spent two nights in a room at the Flamingo Motel on North 41 in Sarasota, a notoriously dingy part of town frequented by drug addicts, drug dealers, and prostitutes. I actively and openly pursued more stable arrangements during this time, and was then invited by another acquaintance to stay in the spare room of her house until her alcoholic boyfriend threatened me with a beating that was after three nights there. After that, I accepted yet another invitation from perhaps one of my most eccentric acquaintances to stay in a flop house known as the Flow Factory. The Flow Factory was housed in a derelict glass factory and played host to an assortment of offbeat community events such as flea markets, campfire music nights, and meditation classes. In spite of this colorful utilitarian nature of the establishment, I still couldn't get it out of my head that I was sleeping on a ratty couch in a derelict glass factory being eaten by mosquitoes. And I felt once again like I was at rock bottom.
0: How old were you when this happened?
1: Oh, let me see. This would have been back when I was... I had just turned 31 at the time that this took place.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. And so... The homelessness was caused by you actually having to go from house to house because of different relationships that you had with people you met online.
1: Yeah, just trying to find some sort of stable relationship.
0: What was that like for you mentally when you were going through this?
1: Put it as plainly as possible, I felt like trash. I felt like anyone who ever called me stupid or weak was right. I later on accepted yet another invitation, this time by a co-worker, uh, to stay in the spare room of her house. The spare room was a converted portion of a lanai with a futon bed as the only furniture, so I moved all of my belongings in from out of storage and began to sell them off little by little to try and lighten my load. Also during this time, I was trying to draw up a proper visitation arrangement for my daughter so that we could stay in each other's lives when I left the state. This period, of course, also saw a rise in conflicts between her mother and myself. At the climax of one such conflict, she threatened to completely deny me my right to see our daughter. This she did within full earshot of all of her neighbors, so rather than continue the scene there, I quietly walked, shaking back to my car, and made my way back to my temporary home. During the ride home, I stopped at a red light, and as involuntarily as if I were sneezing, I just began to scream and pound on the walls of my car. I stopped at a liquor store on my way back and bought a large bottle of hard cider. I got back to my room and started drinking and trying to reach out to anybody that I could possibly reach for emotional support or help. I couldn't reach anybody, and so I simply began to cry uncontrollably. I cried for a good couple of hours until I began to feel more exhausted than I ever have, and my head pounded. I contemplated death more and more, resisting the urge to act on it only because I feared leaving my daughter with just the one parent.
0: So you were suicidal at that point?
1: Mm, I certainly had the uh, idea in my head, but like I said, I never acted on it.
0: You have something called complex PTSD. How is that different from just regular PTSD? And like, what symptoms were you displaying that kind of led... To this diagnosis.
1: So, complex PTSD differs from regular PTSD in that, as PTSD is typically associated with a single traumatic event, complex PTSD is attributed to continued, ongoing, or multiple repeated traumatic events. I experienced abuse at the hands of multiple members of my own family, at the hands of my partner and her mother, even at the hands of my employer of 13 years at the liquor store. I also experienced my parents' divorce at 13, a fire that consumed my childhood home at 17, poverty, starvation, and of course the homelessness episode. Now it also does not appear in the DSM-5 as it tends to mimic other psychological disorders such as generalized anxiety, uh, clinical depression, bipolar disorder, and even spectrum disorders according to the literature I have. I received the diagnosis in kind of a roundabout way. I had been seeing a therapist for some time for my depression and unresolved anger and anxiety when another member of my family reached out to me and opened up in a way that I never expected. The things that they shared were absolutely heartbreaking, and it caused me to ask myself where I was when all this was happening. And as I began to think back on where I was when it was happening, it all started to come back the childhood depression, the abuse, the insecurity, things that after my five-and-a-half-year relationship with my daughter's mother, I might have been too hasty to dismiss as insignificant kid stuff. When I shared all this with my therapist, she recommended a book to me titled The Complex PTSD Workbook. As I read and worked through it, I found that I kind of ticked all the boxes.
0: So you had basically blocked out these things from your mind the abuse and everything that happened in your childhood until that point
1: uh maybe not necessarily blocked out um but uh after being with my daughter's mother in her mother's house uh for all of the chaos and drama that happened there and having made it through all that and you know still holding on to a job still not a alcoholic or a drug addict or anything I might have been, like I said, too hasty to dismiss all of that stuff as, you know, just insignificant.
0: So, that was the moment that you kind of realized that this affected you in a major way.
1: Yeah. And gave me a lot of, uh, you know, pause to think on how I interact with people and how I handle conflicts, especially.
0: And when you say spectrum disorder, are you referring to... The autism spectrum? Yes. Okay. How does complex PTSD affect your life and your relationships and things like that?
1: Well, uh, for the bulk of my life, I've had difficulty processing emotions and expressing them openly. Uh, When my father announced that he and my mother were divorcing, I simply accepted it without response. When my house burned down, I tried to summon up an emotional response, but somehow just couldn't. The more I tried to express my emotions during my relationship with my daughter's mother, the more I was invalidated. Consequently, I think I've just learned that emotions just aren't worth expressing sometimes. I have a girlfriend now whom I have been with now for about seven years, and she will attest that I have difficulty being emotionally open, vulnerable, and I also tend to shy away from taking risks, even those from which I may benefit. When conflicts arise, uh, anxiety will send my mind into a clouded jumble and I'll just shut down. And then, of course, I'll become depressed over my inability to respond and therefore resolve the conflict.
0: What kind of treatment or therapy have you undergone for this? Well,
1: As I mentioned before, I have been seeing a therapist for some time. I will admit I have not been seeing her as regularly or as frequently as I probably should, only because of time and expense. I work full-time right now, and my days off don't always coincide with my therapist's availability. Furthermore, I have a rather large mental health copay on my insurance plan, so I can't afford to see my therapist as often as I might like. Just the same, I try to make appointments as frequently as I'm able.
0: There's one thing that when we talked before that you said is almost like a refuge for you, and that was theater. Yes. How does theater help?
1: Well, um, I've been involved in local theater as well as student films, independent films, and web series for the past ten and a half years. When I'm acting, particularly on stage in the theater more than any other venue, it is the one place where I feel like I'm in complete control of my faculties. Uh, when I'm in character, I know who I am, as everything is you know, scripted. I always know what to say, what to do, how to respond, and how the story will play out and be resolved in the end. So, um, ironically, although you know there's such a thing as stage fright, it's not to the same degree as my anxiety. You know, And uh, you know, real life, as we all know, is not scripted and is consequently uh, more chaotic and unpredictable than that. On average, I do maybe one or two shows a year, but if I could afford to do it all the time, I absolutely would.
0: Right, yeah. Totally understand that. The arts, especially just beginning, don't really pay that much.
1: No, they don't.
0: You have the perfect theater voice. Thank you. Question. Mm -hmm. What is your relationship with your parents like today?
1: Well, um, I talk to my mother regularly, um, like every week on the phone. And uh, she comes down to pay a visit uh, every so often. I go up to see her in Pensacola once in a great while. She's much more in touch with my daughter than my father is. In point of fact, in the 16 years that I've been a father myself, my dad has never made an effort to meet his granddaughter. He and I have not spoken in a few years. Um, We never had any grand conflict, No, never had any shouting match. We just kind of fizzled our way apart, I guess you could say. Like I said, he seems to have had no motivation whatsoever to meet his granddaughter, and uh, I've never really had the opportunity or resources to uh, bring her up there to meet him, so that just kind of, like I said, fizzled away.
0: It sounds like, from what you said earlier, that in your childhood and early adulthood, you were kind of feeling alone. Do you still feel that loneliness?
1: Um, it's difficult for me to be social when I'm in the theater. I guess I have what I like to call rent of friends you know, when I'm uh, with a, a cast of characters and a crew and everything, and, you know, we're seeing each other on a regular basis. It's a very easy social environment. But then when we're not working on a project together, it's hard to find a reason to meet up again. Socialization for socialization's sake is uh, kind of a foreign concept, I guess. I guess I'm still kind of trying to find my people, I guess you could say. I've tried maintaining friendships with theater contacts. I've tried um, maintaining friendships with people I meet in the, the drag community. I thought, you know, there might be more of a um, personal connection on that plane with uh, my gender fluidity. But ultimately, it all comes down to the impersonal uh, subject of projects. It's not really any just plain old casual socialization.
0: Would you say either the PTSD or the anxiety that you experience affects your circle of friends?
1: I would definitely say the anxiety um, has something to do with it. I'll try for a while to reach out to people, you know, just to talk or hang out. And uh, more often than not, I'll not get a response for a long time, and uh, I hesitate to press the matter because I don't want to be that guy. You know, I don't want to. Um, I don't want to nag him, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term, I tend to over rationalize. You know, thinking, oh, they're probably busy. They probably have a lot going on. Um, but it just becomes, you know, a little too consistent to feel like wrong place, wrong time.
0: Right. You've been through a lot. Is there anything that you can look back on and say, well, that was a terrible experience, but there was some good that came from it?
1: Uh, Well, the most obvious response, of course, uh, to that question is that out of my toxic relationship with my ex, I have kids that I love. Also, out of the financial struggles that I had with that partner, I've learned to trust myself with my assets more than anybody else. And as awful as my 13-year experience was working for an abusive employer at the liquor store, it was a steady job that paid well until I was able to find something better and pursue a trade later on. And it was also where I met my current girlfriend.
0: So we're talking about homelessness, but also mental health struggles. What misconceptions do you think that people have about people who might be homeless or people who are dealing with mental health struggles like yourself? Well, uh,
1: with regards to homelessness, one thing that I hear a lot and that I've been guilty of saying myself back before I had that very dramatic change of perspective That I find most despicable is when people say of the homeless, you know, they made their choices. They can straighten out their life whenever they want. I, for one, did not choose to become homeless. It happened upon me. And maybe there are those on the streets who really did just choose to wind up where they are, but how can anyone claim to know a person's story that well? Maybe they did make that choice, but what led to them making that choice? help is not easy to ask for, and hope is just as hard to hold on to, if not harder. Uh, The same goes for seeking help with mental issues. It's pretty well known that seeking psychological uh, help carries with it a social stigma. But in addition to that, I feel like today we're kind of living in a society where many of us kind of base their social views and philosophies on the abrasive words of stand-up comedians, you know, they. Take them to be philosophers and educators rather than simply entertainers. To cite one particular example, um, I remember uh, Dennis Leary quipping that people seeking therapy are just whining to their therapist that they're not happy and that all they really need is to be told to shut the hell up and get over themselves. And this view is echoed on social media and it turns my stomach. Like I said, I've been guilty of saying that myself uh, before I knew any better. I lived a pretty sheltered life uh, up in massachusetts and then i came down here and all this stuff happened and i wound up essentially living out of my car bouncing from hotel rooms to you know guest rooms to block houses and i've heard it said that rock bottom is a college education and that's very true
0: hmm. that is deep mm-hmm. do you still hear people saying those things cuz i feel like nowadays there's more of a push to, you know, go to therapy or deal with mental health issues?
1: Well, um, I definitely hear uh, the thing regarding homelessness, that, you know, it's a choice. They made their choice. Uh, with regards to mental health issues, uh, depression and anxiety, you see a lot of conversation, a lot of, uh, I should say, ready-made conversation in the form of memes and short videos on you know Facebook, TikTok, whatever have you, where, you know, they say... They they oversimplify matters by saying things like, you know, happiness is a choice. You can choose your way out of depression. You can choose not to be anxious in any given situation. Everything is, you know, choice, 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 willpower, strength, weakness, and, you know, the implications that come with all of that. So maybe not so much in casual conversation, but there is definitely that uh, philosophy being pushed.
0: Got it. So it's more of like, the subtleties of the message yeah well any last words Daniel
1: um no I think I've said all I've come to say
0: I truly appreciate you being open and sharing your story with me and my listeners
1: thank you for giving me the opportunity to share it
0: Stay tuned for the mic drop moment. Enjoy what you heard today. Help us get the word out. Give You Talk a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. You might find your review reposted on our social media. Thanks for listening. The mic drops next. Yes, this was a conversation about homelessness and mental health, but I think this was also a conversation about identity. In their early 20s, Daniel began to identify as gender fluid. However, it seems as though they never quite fit in with their family. They were singled out and teased for not being masculine enough, which is part of the reason they left their hometown. Seeking acceptance... Daniel moved into an unhealthy living situation with someone they met online. When Daniel finally decided they could no longer live in this situation, they ended up becoming homeless, bouncing from place to place and living with people they barely knew until that situation fell through and they had to find somewhere else to go. During this stint of homelessness, Daniel's self-esteem and mental health suffered. The only thing that kept them from acting on suicidal thoughts was the thought of leaving their daughter. Daniel was diagnosed as having complex PTSD, which exacerbates their struggles to find real friendships. Though their life is more stable, Daniel is still trying to find their people and a sense of identity. One thing that Daniel does enjoy is theater, because with acting, everything is scripted and you already know what will happen in the end. It creates a certain predictability that's not present in real life. As an actor, you become the character. What you say and do is already laid out for you. Daniel has been through so many unpredictable things. They feel uncomfortable and unsure when trying to make new friends, and they don't know how situations are going to turn out. These feelings add to the anxiety they feel. When it comes to experience, the lack thereof can create a certain ignorance. Daniel found that even they believe some of the misconceptions about homelessness and mental health until actually living it. This is why we have to start listening to each other. Every person, every experience, every story has value not just for the person who lived it, but for the listeners too. People need people to grow as people. If you liked what you heard on this episode, share it with a friend. In a couple of weeks, you'll hear from Heather Hutchinson, a singer-songwriter and best-selling author who happens to have been blind from birth. Have a great week! grace and blessings.